Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. 100 years ago this November, the tomb of Tutankhamun was discovered in Egypt's Valley of the Kings and the news became an international sensation. In tonight's show, we want to explore the real story behind the legend of the discovery, including the famous curse as we go in search of King Tut. Last week, we found out about the British monarchy and the First World War, what happened in Ireland and around the world in 1922, and how the art world became modern and if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows just go to our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts tonight's debate is on the legend and the legacy of Tutankhamun Tutankhamun had a short life and a short reign becoming pharaoh around 3000 years ago Because of ill health, he reigned for only about nine or ten years, dying at the age of 19. And his death marked the end of the 18th dynasty. In 1922, Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered at Luxor in Egypt by Howard Carter and his team, which included Egyptian men and children. The story attracted worldwide interest and a legend quickly grew around a so-called curse of the pharaohs. Despite the relative unimportance of his reign, Tutankhamun is celebrated today because of the discovery of his tomb and the artefacts associated with him. So in tonight's show, we want to go behind the legend and look at the extraordinary legacy of the pharaoh who is sometimes known simply as King Tut. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Christina Riggs is Professor of the History of Visual Culture at Durham University and is an expert on representations of ancient Egyptian culture. Her recent work has looked at the history of the Tutankhamun discovery and she is the author of Treasured, How Tutankhamun Shaped a Century, as well as a study of the photographic archive called Photographing Tutankhamun. Dr. Hussein Omar lectures in Modern Global History at University College Dublin and is an expert on the cultural and intellectual histories of the modern Middle East. His current research examines the anti-colonial insurrectionary movements in Egypt and Iraq between 1919 and 1920 and builds on his forthcoming monograph The Rule of Strangers, Empire, Islam and the Invention of Politics in Egypt 1867 to 1922. Dr. Daniela Rosano is co-curator of the exhibition Tutankhamun, Excavating the Archive at the Bodleian Libraries at the University of Oxford and she's also the project officer at the Griffith Institute, the Centre for Egyptology at Oxford. And that exhibition will be running at the University of Oxford's Western Library until the 5th of February 2023. Well, you are all very welcome. But Christina, I might begin with you and I might just go straight into that subtitle of your work, Treasured, How Tutankhamun Shaped a Century, because it is quite extraordinary how a discovery 100 years ago has been so influential, not just in terms of archaeology, but in terms of pop culture, in terms of, of, of all these fictional representations as well as the, as the non-fiction ones. And it is quite a remarkable legacy. Um, thank you, Patrick. Yes, it is. It's um, arguably the, the first big media sensation of, of the modern age because it, it appears on the world stage at a time when the mass media is flourishing and especially when the photographs are able to be printed, circulated and printed at a really good quality and those photographs make the story. We tend to think that, um, two, two things that I tend to challenge, one is that, that the, the work on the tomb only took place in 1922 and bam, that was it. It's actually a 10 year long saga. And the other thing is that we tend to think that ancient Egypt and Tutankhamun have always been interesting and always for the same reasons. That's not the case at all. In fact, by World War II, interest in Tutankhamun had, had diminished. Um, the world had other things on its mind and it's only 
after Egypt's independence, 1952, the 1952 um, Free Officers Revolution, and especially the 1956 Suez Crisis, it's only at that point that Tutankhamun starts to become interesting again and um, regain a kind of international, national and international especially profile thanks to the tours of his objects that Egypt starts to, to organize, um, sending them around the world in the 1960s and 1970s and more recently. And that's a kind of rebirth, a, a relaunching of Western interest in Tutankhamun, and I would say arguably an attempt for Egyptology, Western Egyptology, um, to, to reassert its intellectual ownership over the story of ancient Egypt and the story of Tutankhamun. And Christina, why was the discovery so significant? Was it because it was the first royal tomb that was discovered completely intact and therefore opened up so much knowledge about about the period? Was it that was that the great breakthrough? Because Tutankhamun himself wasn't such a an important pharaoh. That, that's right, Patrick. I would say that it is an unexpected and extremely rare find, you know, unique really. There had been other royal burials discovered um, and would be of World War II. There was another um, intact royal burial discovered, but it's the timing of Tutankhamun and it's the timing of the find, the the availability of mass media and the, the ability to circulate and print the really stunning photographs that capture the public imagination. It's also right at the time um, that's pivotal, and Hussein can can speak more about this um, uh, than I can, that's pivotal in terms of Egypt's steps towards independence and the successes that the anti-colonial movement starts to have against um, the British occupation uh, so we tend to think of the First World War. I mean, this will be familiar, I think, more familiar to Irish audiences, but we tend to think of the First World War as ending in 1918. In fact, those those crises uh, rumble on in different ways um, as the British Empire and other empires un- start to unravel and because of the, the ending of the, the Ottoman Empire and its control over Egypt. So there's all these, these currents going on that Tutankhamun just hits this time, this right time, and bam, it explodes. It's It's kind of fits into previous um, tales and legends um, associated with with Egyptian archaeology but but with that that full force of the the media the Western um, media and Egyptian media that, that follow the story intently I see it as a symbol of Egypt's own rebirth and reemergence and Christina it is quite extraordinary given that Tutankhamun reigns for such a short period uh, you know, was dead by 19, the age of 19 or 20, uh, brought an end to the, the, the 18th dynasty. But the fact that he wouldn't have been significant in his own right if we were doing a list of pharaohs, and yet he's probably the most pharaoh in history today. I think it's partly because there's so little one can actually say about him as a historical figure. It means that everybody can project on him what they want. It's his very blankness that makes him a, a useful icon. Brilliant. Now, Hussein, Christina there mentioned what was going on in Egypt and, and, and the wider political context. Could you maybe talk to us about that in terms of where Egypt was in 1922 and I suppose the imperial dimension to the discovery as well? Right, absolutely. So, uh, as Christina mentioned, timing is everything with this story. Um, November 4th is, 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 is the date that's given for the discovery of the tomb or the beginning of the discovery of the tomb. But it was in the last week of February of that year that Britain had very, very reluctantly uh, granted Egypt independence. Now, it was a very qualified independence. It wasn't an independence that Egyptians particularly liked, but it was the product of a sustained anti-colonial 
uh, revolution. And in fact, the anti-colonial revolution really continues until the 1950s, until, as, as, as Christina uh, gestures. Uh, but in 1919, at the end of the First World War, Egyptians had risen up in, in vast, vast numbers uh, and among all sorts of different social classes, uh, particularly uh, women and non-Muslims were very visible in that revolution. And, and that leads to uh, the granting, begrudgingly, of independence to Egypt in February of 1922. Uh, but what Egypt was, or what it would become, was a very open question. We tend to think of Egypt as a stable historic entity going back all the way uh, thousands of years. And yet, in 1922, the question of where Egypt began and ended, crucially, whether Egypt included Sudan and parts of Libya, uh, was a very, very open question. And uh, it was one of uh, great historical struggle, and people were uh, debating this question very, very vigorously, right at the time when the tomb is discovered. And when the tomb is discovered, it becomes, um, you know, the, the most stunning visual representation of what Egypt uh, had the potential to be. So there's a kind of futuristic element to the aesthetics of the discovery, too. Uh, it's at a time when there's this intense soul-searching among Egyptians of all social classes as they seek to define what this new country will be. And I, and I think the element of the king's youth is really, really important in that story. This will also be familiar to Irish audiences, uh, but uh, the status of young states or new states or small states, as, as they were called in the sort of Versailles era, um, was, being, was, be, was being rethought in, in, in all sorts of different ways. And, and the youth of the king and the youth of Egypt, even though uh, it's a kind of youth of an antique Egypt, um, is really really important. And that captures the imagination in Egypt quite a lot. Um, and in the 1930s, as, as Christina says, you know, the, um, this is an ongoing process. The tomb takes 10 years to fully sort of come to light. Uh, but, but in this ongoing process, you also have um, uh, a new monarchy that's being put on stage, a young monarchy, and, and, and more crucially after that, a young king in 1936. In fact, he's so young uh, he's considered to be too young. They have to constantly recalculate his uh, date of birth according to various calendars in order to assert the possibility of him sitting on the throne. So the, so the use of the king becomes a really, really important part. And of course, the uprising, the anti-colonial uprising of 1990 is a very young uprising. And it's, and, and, and it's all part of a reconceptualization, I think, not just in Egypt, but globally in the, in the role of the youth, what, what, what kind of political potential the young youth have to play. And I think King Tut, in, in, in stunning visual terms, uh, makes the case uh, for the importance of the youth as a new kind of political category. Daniela, it's interesting that Howard Carter and his team of British archaeologists got all of the credit and Carter became an international sensation. But as the Excavating the Archive exhibition there shows, there was actually a much larger team over the 10 years, including a lot of Egyptian men and including children who were kind of written out of the story and became invisible. Yes, that is that's true indeed. And this is one of like the main things we look at in our exhibition. Now, obviously, we want to commemorate the big event, but we also want, want to kind of interrogate it by looking 
beyond the colonialist stereotypes that obviously had very quickly gathered around this very, very famous find. And I mean, I have to also say, being on the show with you now, but also, for instance, with Christina, we were, we were actually really indebted to her work. It was truly inspirational to read her books, and that really shaped the narrative of our exhibition as well. So we hope when the visitor leaves, he will have learned, she will have learned that there's just so much more than only gold to Tutankhamun. And that was a proper team effort that lasted 10 years. And that in an archaeology in general, you need, you know, you need a lot of multiple skills and specialists. You produce many different types of records. And it was not the story of a single heroic man, which also happens to be white and male and British. Um, and above all, we really want to showcase the crucial role of the Egyptian team members, whose contributions, you know, have very often been overlooked, whose names have been written out of the usual accounts of the discovery. Now, we do know that Carter very heavily depended on a group of, of skilled and experienced Egyptian team members he had worked alongside with for so many, many years. Now, they were able to meet the daily challenges, the practical difficulties on, on excavations, which are very much still the same problems today, actually. Um, so we know the names only of um, the so-called performance, the so-called Ruasa that Carter was um, employing. They are named and thanked in his publication, but otherwise Egyptians were very rarely named in the records and their role was downplayed. Um, you know, we, we can see, for instance, on the images, he employed at least probably 50 local workmen, dozens of children, which you know, has to be said, was standard practice in these days. And um, although we, we don't find their names in the records, like in the diaries, we see them, of course, they become visible in Heriberg's photographs. You, know? you see them, for instance, the foreman helping Carter removing uh, the wall between the antechamber and the burial chamber, lifting shrine roofs, the really tricky jobs where he was working with them shoulder on shoulder. You see the other workmen carrying baskets, removing the bubble, transporting the objects to the, the so-called laboratory where they would be um, conserved, loading the crates with the objects on, on the barges that were then bringing the objects to the museum in Cairo. And then there were actually these men who worked under very, very often very harsh weather conditions and high temperatures. They conducted the really physically demanding work. Um, but we, we don't really have their names, and they themselves have not left some something equivalent like to, to letters or diaries we have from the European team members, because to face it, probably a lot of them couldn't even read or write. What they did was, in the evenings, they went back home to their families, and they just, just told them what, what they've experienced during the day. No, so in that respect... Um, the images that Burton took are really key to understand their role and their contribution. And they give us at least a little bit more of an in inclusive view. Now, I mean, it has to be said, even with, you know, showing as many photographs with Egyptian team members as possible, of course, the exhibition can only still show a highly partial view of the event. Now, it is a, an archive that has been created by the English, um, so you, you can only see and, and read one side, of course. Um, but but we really want to at least make that point that people become aware of this fact that there is only one side to the story here. And that's why we chose to, in the center of the big exhibition, you will see a massive showcase that shows you a series of three images of an Egyptian boy wearing one of Tutankhamun's necklaces. And that 
these items are kind of key key items for the exhibition in many respects. The, the, the image was published first in the Illustrated London News in 1927, and um, it was no, they just, they wrote in this article it has been taken simply to show the method of suspension of the necklace. However, when you look into the boy's face, his expression, there is clearly a much more complex human response. He seems to be really aware of, of the weight of the necklace, both the physical weight, this really expensive necklace, but also metaphorically speaking, the weight of ancient history on his shoulders. Then it's one of these rare moments where ancient and modern Egypt touch the, the present and the past are united. And I also find it quite moving when you think that the boy was probably roughly the same age as Tutankhamun when he died. So I hope um, that you know, people will, will see this additional aspect to, to something that has not really been center stage in the past hundred years when we talk about this famous discovery. And Daniela, how dangerous would it have been for the team? Because again, our perceptions maybe are influenced by the Hollywood movies and, and different representations of doing uh, these kind of digs, ancient Egyptian digs in, in the modern era. And I just wonder how much truth is there to that? <laughs> so I've been excavating in Egypt uh, myself for more than 20 years. And well, you have the obvious dangers when, when you work in the desert, there are dangers like snakes or scorpions or spiders, they are dangerous that, that you get ill. Um, but, you know, especially this excavation was not, was not a very dangerous one to start with. It was indeed not even a real excavation. Excavation means you remove, let's say, the filling of a room. Um, but this was a sealed tomb. It was not necessary to excavate it in a classical sense. The key aspect was to document everything in context properly before you remove it. But, I mean, as far as I can see it, it was, it was not really dangerous in that sense. Very good. So they, didn't, they weren't finding traps every, every turn they made. No, they were not. It was a very small tomb. That, because Tutankhamun died unexpectedly, they hadn't really prepared a proper burial yet. They reused the small tomb. There were only four rooms. And, you know, that actually is quite interesting to, to still see. It was, you know, out of this more than 5,000 objects that were found in these four very small rooms. And I hope the visitor gets a sense of the space and the layout because we've included a little 3D reconstruction in the, in the exhibition. It's a 90-second movie um, that is entirely based on the archival material, by the way, so using Burton's photographs and plans and object cards. And there the visitor will get a sense for how small this all was. And um, there were no traps whatsoever, <laughs> to be honest. Very good. Well, there may not have been traps, but there certainly was a curse and the legend of a curse which soon developed. And we'll be exploring that legend and the curse right after this break. Talking History History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the legacy of the Tutankhamun discovery 100 years ago. I'm joined by a brilliant panel of experts, Professor Christina Riggs of Durham University, Dr. Hussein Omar of University College Dublin and Dr. Daniela Rosno of the uh, Tutankhamun Excavating the Archive exhibition at the Bodleian Libraries at Oxford. And Christina, let's talk about the curse because it's something that sprung up almost straight away. I think there was a disgruntled archaeologist who may have been the original instigator, but did that contribute to the to the mystique uh, uh, surrounding the the discovery? 
the supposed curse of the pharaohs or the curse of the mummy goes back to 19th century orientalist um, literature written in France and in Britain. So the idea that the bodies of um, of dead Egyptians, of ancient Egyptians that are that are brought into European museums and antiquities shops, you know, antique shops are are a threat and might come back to life is well established. In, in literature, it changes tack somewhat towards the late 19th century. After Britain's 1882 invasion and occupation of Egypt, one starts to see more stories um, in British literature and fiction of this curse becoming um, a little bit darker, taking on a darker edge. And I think one, um, one literary scholar um, has analyzed that as being a sort of um, subconscious uh, reckoning of knowing that Western interference and violence towards Egyptians um, is is immoral, sacking of tombs and the desecration of, of bodies. So the curse has a long history, like so, so much else about um, Western fantasies of ancient Egypt. It serves Western purposes ultimately, and it's easily revived in, in 1922, 1923, when the sponsor of the excavation the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, Lord Carnarvon, dies unexpectedly just within a few weeks of um, a staged opening for the press and, and the great and good of the British and Egyptian regimes to open up, uh, remove the wall into that will reveal the burial chamber, the second, as it were, room of the tomb that they're going to explore. And so Carnarvon had been in poor health for years following an automobile accident. That's why he started going to Egypt in the first place, was for the warm the warm weather. as, as um, as so many European tourists did um, to, to have a warm winter um, rather than, than freeze in, in, uh, in London. So Carnarvon was in poor health and gets bitten um, by, uh, by a mosquito, apparently the bite gets infected, he suffers from, from sepsis and, and dies in his hotel room in Cairo before he can get back to Britain. And, and so yes, it's then kind of a, a rival journalist. Um, because what Carnarvon has done, and Carter as well, they haven't they haven't yet realized, I think, or taken on board how much things had changed, as Hussein explained um, in, in the first segment, that, um, that Britain had reluctantly granted this kind of independence, not full sovereignty, but a kind of independence to Egypt, and that the, the, the tomb, um, the discovery of Tutankhamun, of this sort of virtually unknown um, and, and young king, speaks very much to that political and cultural moment in Egyptian history. But Carter and Carnarvon are acting as if they're still, the British um, still in charge, and Carnarvon had sold rights to the story, exclusive rights, to the London Times. And justifiably, the Egyptian government, um, the Egyptian newspapers and other newspapers are furious that they are supposed to go through a London newspaper in order to get the stories and the pictures and the interviews um, that will tell this story in the press. So the curse um, of, of the mummy, the curse of Tutankhamun, the curse of the pharaohs, these are all different versions of anxieties um, that, that cluster around Western interference in uh, with the dead and Western interference in the Middle East. And Christine, is this where we get the stories of the mummies and uh, and, and and that element of, of of these fictional representations? Does it all come back to uh, the 1920s and uh, the so-called curse and the fears about what had been unleashed? These curse stories go back to the 19th century, and then they are revived or or take on you know yet a new form 
and uh, in the 1920s um, in connection to the Tutankhamun discovery. So earlier tropes, as, as we would say, earlier themes in literature and in the arts um, are, are revived and, and adapted to fit the Tutankhamun story. And that supposed curse is one of them. I always say if there's any curse, um, curse of the mummy, it's been put on the Egyptian dead, um, not on us, because what we've done to the bodies of the ancient Egyptian dead is truly appalling. And I talk about that in Treasured. Daniela, it's interesting the way so many respectable figures took up the idea of the curse as well, including people like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, and it helped feed the story. And it did become such a an extraordinary part of the story. But indeed, as the exhibition shows, you know, it very much is a myth. And as as the work of Christine and others have shown, because even looking at uh, those who are involved, you know, many live to to happy old age and uh, you don't see a curse striking down uh, the team like you might expect if 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 there was any truth to it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, you know, I looked up all the the ages reasons for the other team members some of them you know became became almost 80 years old and but in the exhibition of course we we address um the curse because uh, it is something that people are still very interested in um but we kind of try to keep it very short you know we have we have one case where we're talking about the curse and there are three um items in there one is uh, a paper from the 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 Australian Illustrated London News from 1923, where, as you mentioned, no other than Arthur Conan Doyle is uh, putting suspicion on a curse of Tutankhamun. Um, But then we also have a telegram that was actually written by a young Irish woman, Ella Young, who was an Irish poet and Celtic mythologist. And um, she sent a telegram to Carter already in January 23, so months before Carnarvon actually died. And that telegram was inspired by clearly a radio report she had heard the, heard on the earlier the day before that work in the valley had to be stopped because due to a sandstorm, which is as you can imagine nothing unusual. Um, and so she already telegrammed Carter in in January saying if trouble continues, pour wine, oil, and milk on the threshold. And so we are showing the telegram to kind of contextualize that. These kind of stories, the stories of a curse, were circulating already a long time before anyone had actually died. And I think that is also partly because ancient Egypt had always in popular culture been connected somehow to the occult. The the connection to the dead was always a very important aspect of ancient Egyptian culture. Um, And on top of that, I think... It also came at the right time, not just being after the First World War and a pandemic, something many people can relate to these days now. It was a time um, when people were still mourning the loss of a lot of young men. Now, there was definitely a sense of empathy, um, a, a boosted feeling towards this young man, Tutankhamun, who had also died too early, and his memory was still preserved until that day. So I think the discovery very much still resonated with people, uh, the people of the Western world who had, you know, just, just lost so many young men and a generation that was still mourning. And I think that also kind of played into feeding um, the myth of, of the curse of Tutankhamun. Hussein, was there resentment in Egypt at the way the story of, of Tutankhamun and the way the, the history of, of ancient Egypt was being uh, packaged in this period, the way... Uh, 
people were instead of, of, of thinking about the rich history were focused on things like a, a curse or the mummies and so on and uh, was the resentment at that and even at what was mentioned the way uh, the story was sold to the Times of London and you had to get a British newspaper to read about it. Yes, uh, and I'll just go back a second to talk about the curse because uh, I think Christina has made a very compelling case for the ways in which the curse was a manifestation of some kind of displaced guilt at the kind of violence that was being wrought onto Egyptian bodies, live and dead. Um, however, um, Egyptians themselves were very active in the antiquities trade. Egyptians were not innocent in uh, the process by which uh, dead bodies were being sold to be crushed into medication to uh, uh, Victorian travelers or to be displayed and unwrapped in homes. Many Egyptians were uh, part of a very thriving antiquities trade, which involved uh, trade in bodies. And I think on the part of devout Muslim Egyptians, there was uh, a sense that this was uh, aberrant, that this was something uh, that should not have uh, been allowed uh, to pass. And, and, and the myth of the curse is alive in Egypt, too, among Egyptians. Now, when um, Carnarvon dies, I mean, interestingly, uh, the Egyptian uh, delegation, which is negotiating the terms of the independence and the evacuation and the creation of a new constitution, which is which is about to be launched in 1923, and the in the first uh, popular elections, the first truly popular democratic elections in Egyptian history, uh, barring women, of course, but but it's the first time that there's universal male uh, suffrage. Now the negotiations for all of that begin to happen in Highclere Castle, which is where. Uh, Lord Carnarvon's seat is, and, and famously it's the place where Downton Abbey is filmed. Um, but as resentment begins to brew, uh, not just about the press coverage, but there's another incident, of course, uh, which becomes a major diplomatic incident, uh, when the wives of uh, people, uh, European people, involved in the excavation are given preference uh, to uh, Egyptian, some Egyptian ministers and some of the wives of Egyptian ministers in the unveiling uh, of the tomb. And uh, Carter is furious that the Egyptian government rejects uh, this request that the wives of the uh, foreign excavators um, be allowed uh, first. And he writes to uh, the would-be prime minister, Zagloul, who happens to be my great uncle, um, and, is, and, and is furious and Zagloul uh, Zagloul is furious back. And, but um, amidst all of this fuss around who owns the pictures, who owns the king, who owns the tomb, who owns Egyptian history. And of course, I mean, brewing behind all of that is a question of whether Egyptian history is, uh, is the property of Egyptians or whether it's some kind of universal global uh, heritage. Uh, uh, and of course, that has a valence that's very particular in a moment when Egyptian sovereignty is being denied. So then, of course, the curse gets uh, revived in the Egyptian press uh, to sort of as, as a kind of warning. You know, if you if you if you don't give Egyptians what they want, then perhaps uh, the curse will be truly unleashed uh, upon uh, the empire. 
So um, I, th- I think, you know, it has, it has valences that go in very many different and multiple ways. Uh, and it's not just a myth of uh, the Orientalist, uh, you know, tourist or whatever, uh, which it certainly is, but is, is one that's co-authored uh, by Egyptians and their imperial overlords alike. Christina, talk to us about the so-called treasures that were discovered, all of these rich artefacts, and, and also uh, the incredible photographic archive that, that you've written about, because over that 10-year period of clearing the tomb, uh, there were photographs being taken all the time, people like Harry Burton, uh, as, as your work has shown, and, and the fact that you have so many photographs of it, did that, in a way, help contribute to uh, the popularity of it as well, because you have this critical coming together of of archaeology and photography at the same time? Um, right, if I'd maybe take that in two parts, because that's a big question. So first, you've asked what treasures, so-called, were in the tomb. The tomb is, is jam-packed um, with the with, with two kinds of objects, generally, with the remains of material used in the funeral and in the burial rites. So we're talking about sacred objects, many of them wrapped up um, or draped with with linen textiles that had deteriorated over time. We also have material that belonged to the king personally um, from his childhood up to the point of death. Um, This is often interpreted in Egyptology in a rather kind of banal way as if it's what you needed for the afterlife. I think it's more to do with what you must deposit of what belonged to a person and can no longer be used in life. And so it goes into the tomb. So we get furniture, um, his his clothing, um, some kind of sticks and staves of, of office, all of it stored in boxes, which was what um, Egyptian furniture mostly comprised, was different kind of boxes and chests and shrines as well, different you know, beds and, and chairs. So it's really fascinating material found um, some things that that did have parallels or that were familiar to the archaeologists, but maybe less familiar to the public and never found, you know, basically as they had been left when the tomb was sealed up by the by the priests in around 13, 1320 BC, so more than 3000 years ago. As that material is taken out from the tomb, it goes to another tomb at the other end of the, the Valley of the Kings in, in Egypt, um, a, a larger tomb that the Egyptian Antiquity Service had given over to Carter and his team for storage and for workspace and for photography. Photography was absolutely crucial to the work of archaeology, really to any kind of, of discipline from about the 1880s onwards when p- photographic technology became a little bit easier you know, to use and, and cheaper to use. So the fact that you would take photographs uh, at an excavation wasn't new, and Howard Carter himself had years of experience taking photographs of, of his work in progress or taking photographs of objects, which was a particular um, kind of mode of photography that helped sort of make or helped create, you know, what, what an object was, what an archaeological artifact was. What Carter did was he secured on a, on a temporary basis at, at first and then constantly renegotiated um, over, over the decade um, of work. He secured the services of another Englishman, a man named Harry Burton, who had been working in Egypt um, almost as well, not as long as Carter, but had been wor- working in Egypt for quite a long time, was employed by a wealthy American museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Who, um, who ran excavations in, in the same part. As it happens, I'm actually here right now. I'm in, I'm in Gurna um, on the west bank of, of Luxor in Egypt where, where all of this happened a century ago. 
So Carter secures um, the services of Burton because Burton had a reputation as a top photographer. He'd been taking photographs since he was a teenager, based in Florence in Italy. He'd had his own studio there where he was photographing pictures and works of Renaissance art um, for, for art historians, for antique shops, you know, merchants and the art trade. He then, um, for various reasons and personal, personal connections, winds up working in Egypt. And he's a great photographer. He's often wrongly characterized. I've seen this happen a lot when Egyptologists kind of write about these photographs. They're wrongly characterized as, as works of art or themselves or that he's an art photographer. There really isn't such a thing. He himself is hired and paid as an archaeologist, so he also is working in archaeology, but with photography as a specialty. And with him, like Carter, he is relying on a team of Egyptian assistants, at least one of whom, a man named Hussein, worked with him for 25 years. So, um, but Burton's just very good. He's very good at achieving kind of even lighting effects, a really sharp, clear focus. He's using large format 18 by 24 centimeter glass plates, which give you super sharp um, contrast and which you could print directly. Yeah, I think we've, in a digital age, we've lost maybe some of the vocabulary or the knowledge of how that was done, but you could, you could make a print that was exactly that size. And that means that the, as he sends those prints back to London, to the Times to be printed, they can go into the newspapers and magazines looking really nice as well. So Burton's photographs, create the story. He documents work inside the tomb as it happens and at different stages. Um, but then he also, once the objects have, have come out, have gone into this other tomb, the, the, the laboratory, they call it the workshop, um, where they, they are repaired because they, they, they all need heavy kind of cleaning and repair and fixing and stabilizing. And only at that stage, once they're all nice, does, does Burton photograph them and, and make them, it almost seems like they're gleaming, uh, that they are treasures. Um, and brings out the, the details in a way that speaks to the success, you know, makes archaeology seem like a success story and makes it seem as if these things were created yesterday and, instead of 3,000 years earlier. Okay, well, fascinating insights into the discovery of Tutankhamun 100 years ago, but going back the 3,000 years and uh, delighted to be joined by our panel experts, including Christina Riggs there, uh, talking to us from Egypt, directly from uh, the scene of the discovery. Well, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll explore the legacy of the discovery over the past 100 years. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the legacy of the discovery at Luxor 100 years ago, the discovery of the tomb of King Tutankhamun. I'm delighted to be joined by a panel of experts, Dr. Professor Christina Riggs of Durham University, author of Treasured How Tutankhamun Shaped a Century, as well as Photographing Tutankhamun, Dr. Hussein Omar of University College Dublin, and Dr. Dana Rosano, the co-curator of the exhibition Tutankhamun Excavating the Archive at Oxford, and it's going to be running there at the Western library until the 5th of February 2023. Daniela, why do you think the story of Tutankhamun has and continues to inspire people 100 years on, uh, that we haven't seemed to have lost our appetite for finding out more about ancient Egypt, about King Tosh and about all of the treasures and and artefacts that were discovered? Well, there was obviously a period of time when there was not this, this much thirst for Tutankhamun after the Second World War, for instance, so that seems to come and go a little bit in waves. In general, you know, it's difficult to ask this an Egyptologist because I would obviously always say it's because ancient Egypt is so fascinating and so interesting and archaeology is such, is, is such a great field of academia that, that people just can't get enough of that. Um, but I think, of course, there were many 
special aspects in that specific case. And it was the first time a royal Egyptian tomb was discovered more or less intact. It was that of a young man. You had this amazing funerary mask, this this face, which also then became an icon, for instance, um, for the newly found Egyptian independence. And I think then also the fact that, as Christina said, it was the first time this kind of event could be transmitted to the world. And and I mean, I hope that, that it'll be not when you go through the exhibition now, we try to touch upon these kind of things that people can kind of relive um, the, the excitement and the, the honest of this discovery and that they kind of understand you know, what, what, what a big deal it was back then, but, back then, but also um, still today. And Hussein, where do you think the story stands for Egyptians today? Because we've heard about how at certain periods uh, the artefacts and treasures travelled around the world, uh, thus renewing and uh, and inspiring greater interest in it. But uh, to what extent or where does the where does the story of King Tut stand today? So, uh, in addition um, to some of the things that Daniela uh, mentioned about the enduring appeal, I'd like to think that much of the appeal is also the product of a very instrumental, clever, state-directed campaign from Egypt itself uh, at some very crucial moment in its political history to sell Egypt to the world. And that, it's no coincidence. Uh, that Nasser um, in uh, the 60s, just around the time of a six-day war, a devastating defeat for Egypt, approves some of the uh, loan of the objects and, uh, from Egypt uh, to go abroad. And then, of course, the much more famous exhibition of the 70s, which Christina uh, has written about and uh, is very well-placed to talk about, is launched right at the time of uh, the Camp David Agreement uh, when when Egypt is making uh, a bid to reclaim uh, the Sinai. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the enduring and sad legacies of the King Tut's discovery for Egyptians is twofold. One is that it creates a notion that only the kind of history that is uh, commodifiable uh, uh, that we can sell to tourists is the only kind of history that matters. And I think that's absolutely launched by the King Tut discovery. Now, of course, there have been tour, you know, Cook and all sorts of other kinds of tourism to Egypt uh, before that discovery. But I think it's really in the 1920s and 30s uh, after the discovery that this notion that ancient Egypt's past has to be preserved against all other kinds of pasts, because that's the kind of past that tourists like. And that's had a very, very unfortunate um, uh, consequence on on the way that any non-ancient past is treated in Egypt. Um, As we speak, uh, uh, the largest and oldest Muslim uh, cemetery uh, going back to the ninth century is is about to be demolished, for example, and 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 that's because it's not something that tourists know and care about. Uh, the other legacy, uh, and and again, it's a rather sinister and dark legacy, uh, is 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 the rather fascistic ways in which the ancient past has been uh, marshaled uh, by particularly the military rulers of Egypt and 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 
In fact, in independent Egypt, there have predominantly only been military rulers uh, in Egypt uh, to launch uh, rather jingoistic attempts to uh, shore up the popularity. And we saw that last year in the mummy parade. Um, so I uh, rather think of that legacy as being uh, very, very dark in Egypt. And that's not something that we often hear about uh, when we talk about perhaps the more amusing elements of either the curse or, or the, frankly, rather important uh, impact that King Tut had on the decorative arts in Western Europe and North America, but also in Egypt itself, of course. And Christina, it does bring out just the very different dimensions to the story. And as your work shows, you know, there's these interplays with with fiction and we see it in celebrity. And you show how, you know, Jackie Kennedy is the person promoting the exhibition at uh, the National Gallery of Art in the 1960s. And that gives it a a big boost. But then also that interplay with geopolitics, as Hussein has said. And uh, you write about how in the 1970s you see uh, Tutankhamun almost like doing this diplomatic work, promoting the friendly face of of Egypt as an as an ally of the of for the West, so so King Tut has these very many different incarnations in 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 his afterlife after the discovery. Um, he does absolutely, and I and I very much agree with what Hussein's just said there about the darker side of this in Egypt and in in the West in terms of promoting an easily commodifiable oh it's just for fun everybody loves ancient Egypt. A version of this past at the expense of any concern for the lives, um, welfare, well-being, um, and liberties of the modern Egyptian state. So we see all these key moments. Ancient Egypt isn't always interesting. It isn't inevitably something fascinating. It is made to be fascinating, and it serves certain purposes and discourses, and it definitely serves the interests of Western Egyptology, which I think would not have survived the, uh, the, the, the dwindling of empire had it not found other ways to assert its own interests and to assert its access to archaeological sites in this country, for instance. So so there is an uncomfortable side to this that, that doesn't get the attention and doesn't capture press headlines the way the way curses and gold do. And Daniela, finally, if people want to continue this story and and further uncover uh, some of the, the truths behind the mythology, uh, if they can make their way to Oxford, they'll be able to visit your exhibition. Yes. And everyone is very welcome. Um, so it's still con- it's still running until the fifth of of February. Well, I think that's a, an excellent recommendation. But my thanks to an absolutely brilliant panel of experts for really teasing out the nuances and the complexities of the story of the discovery of the Tutankhamun uh, tomb 100 years ago. Uh, Dr. Daniela Rosino, a co-curator of that exhibition, Tutankhamun Excavating the Archive. Uh, Professor Christina Riggs of Durham University, whose brilliant books have really shaped how we uh, view uh, this subject, uh, treasured how Tutankhamun shaped a century and the one on the photographic archive called Photographing Tutankhamun and Dr. Hussein Hamar who's been absolutely wonderful as well uh, lecturers in modern global history at University College Dublin and we'll be definitely having him back on the show again soon well that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History my thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together Marisa Sullivan my producer and Peter Malloy on sound now we have lots of great shows coming up in the weeks ahead uh, looking at Irish and world history so join us next week and in the weeks ahead on News Talk we've been Talking History Good night.